Well, as you're having a seat, you may, yeah, as you may be seated, I guess you'd probably like to know that, yeah? If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I hope you'll find your way to Isaiah chapter 40. That's where we're going to spend uh, our time this morning, thinking about the comfort that we have received in Christ the King. This is, as been noted, the fourth Sunday of Advent, and uh, we are focusing this morning, and we have been focusing throughout our series on the different aspects of the kingship of Christ, his kingly office of Christ. And today we come to that topic that is, whether we frame it this way or not, uh, the topic of the need within ourselves to experience God's nearness, his comfort, his presence as we live in a land, as we noted earlier, that's not our home. And so we are singing this song this morning, God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day and to save us from Satan's power when we were gone astray, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. God rest ye merry gentlemen. If you were to go back and do a little bit of study, which I did this week, the, it's important to notice that sometimes it gets lost in our modern vernacular. We want to sing it as, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Like, merry as a qualifier of gentlemen. But actually, the comma comes after merry. So it should read something like, God rest ye merry gentlemen. And a placement of a comma makes all the difference in the meaning of this text, meaning of this song. The idea here is that God invites them, us, to rest merry, comforted, with joy. The idea of rest is to continue to keep our trust and our comfort. So you might say, God, continue. You people, gentlemen, continue. Keep your joy. Keep your comfort. Why? Well, the song says it in several places. We're saved from Satan's power when we were gone astray. We're freed from Satan's power and might. And in the end of the song, if we were to continue on through it, gives us the application of it. What should resonate from our mouths and our hearts and our minds and our lives is to sing corporate praise and to love the brotherhood. And, and there's no, because we have no better consolation, we have no better comfort than we have in Christ. Now, I can't help but think about how much we need fresh tidings of comfort and joy in the days in which we live. And I don't intend, as I always do, I don't ever want to make it about one issue, but it is something that I think is there. We, if you're at all, unless you're hiding under a rock somewhere, you will know what's going on around us. And I can name off a list that's extremely long, but we are not going to devote our time to that. But I will point out the fact that we live in a world that is extremely concerning and discouraging. I think we all can agree about the realities of that. So when you got satanic displays being put up in Capitol buildings and you got satanic uh, temple clubs being established for after-school activities, again, we can have the debate about the, the, the rightness or the legality of those things. That's not what we're here to talk about this morning. But the reality of it, that's what's in our world. That's the things that we're seeing, and it's unabashedly in our face now, right? Or we have school board members in some very major cities who take an oath of office for their 
new things by on a stack of books that are pedagogically at best inappropriate, at worst perverse. We need church, do we not? Tidings of comfort and joy, do we not? We need it. We need it more now than we ever have, or as much now as we've ever had. If we, the church needs to remind ourselves that we exist as sojourners in this land and we live as pilgrims in this land that's not our home and we have to find a way and carve out a path here and we are faced living in a world that frankly just doesn't really want us in their public square much anymore or if at all, we need to be reminded of this main idea that Christ comforts us. In other words, he consolates, he, he, he consoles us. He's present with us in our fear in our weakness, in our hopelessness, right here in the middle of all this, and cause us to find our comfort in his sovereign power displayed in his son Jesus. So in order to better understand the comfort we have in Christ this morning, we're going to center our attention on those five verses that Jolie just read from chapter 4, in chapter 40 of Isaiah 40, excuse me. And we'll find five tidings there, and we'll get to that here in just a few moments, but I need to do a little setup for us because 40 is not isolated in some sense from 39. And now, uh, to understand the kind of bigger picture here, you've got to understand 39, chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah is really uh, Isaiah's ministry to Judah, and it kind of, it kind of up through Hezekiah, and he's ministering to them before the captivity, before the exile, and he's warning them of all the things that are about to come to pass for Judah, largely was ignoring Isaiah, except for some of those faithful kings. Um, they didn't believe it. They were wrapped up in their prosperity. They were wrapped up in their own little kingdom activity that they had going on there, just like we do in our own time when we do, if we're honest with ourselves. And chapters 40 through 66 is really Isaiah's ministry to the Jews after that prosperity begins to crumble. And they're, they're not flourishing anymore. And wicked kings, and the effect of wicked kings and evil kings is starting to have, like Manasseh, who follows Hezekiah. Well, we still had Josiah, his kingdom, but it, it never had the same prosperity that it had under, that culminated under Hezekiah. And so 40 through 66 is Isaiah's prophetic word, ministry to the Jews who are, who are facing the crumbling of their kingdom and seeing and understanding the, the nearness of this exile that was coming upon them that they largely ignored because they were really satisfied in their comfort. They were really satisfied in their earthly status. They were really satisfied in their earthly condition. This is what we do, right? We get very satisfied here. We, know, we talked about it in Sunday school at one point. The fact that it's, easy, it's easier for us to run to God's word and, and find comfort there when we're in distress we largely ignore it when we are not in distress. And this is, this is the cycle that humanity goes through. It's a cycle that oftentimes we go through, even people who know Christ as king. And so in order for us to grasp what, this, what Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, hold out for us in glad tidings, we need to recognize that on the backdrop of that, there's this gap between Isaiah 39 and 40, there's several years here when he begins to, before he begins to give them these, these oracles. And in the first half, he's given judgment. He's giving warnings. The second half, he's given hope. He's given comfort. And we go to Isaiah 53, and he gives us the point, which is Christ, and points to, to Jesus, the one who would come and be the one who would be the propitiation, the, the savior, the substitute for our, for our sins. So, so 39, if we were to take a quick glance at it, 
helps us see kind of the condition that's, that's kind of led them into this season that Isaiah is going to be speaking to in chapters 40 through 66. And here's the basic idea. Judah's heart had grown cold. Judah's heart had grown dependent on earthly comfort and means and stability. And Judah's heart had been left the lover of their soul, the first love of their heart. They had their heart and dependence for God were growing cold. And again, this is evidence through all of the kings of Judah, but, but I can't imagine a more, more, more stark example than when we get to Hezekiah. And so that's what we're going to do in that first point. We're going to, we're going to look at Hezekiah and his, the end of his ministry for just a moment to kind of set us up for 40, verses 1 through 5, because I think it's important that we reckon with Judah and their weakness and their fears and their continual struggle to trust God and recognize that we can place ourselves in the story just right there too. And we should place ourselves right there. So let's just look at verse 1 here. It says, at that time, this is Isaiah 39, verse 1, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a, pre and a present to Hezekiah, and he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, I don't know if you read this verse appropriately, but this is exactly goes through my head when I read this verse. It's a trap. Yeah? I mean, I hear, I hear Admiral Akbar. That's it, man. This is a trap. And yet Hezekiah is going to fall hook, line, and sinker for the trap, is he not? Right? And so we have this envoy from Babylon who's coming in. And this is before Babylon is, they're, they're growing in power to the, to the east. And this is during a time when Assyria has got the most of this strength from the north. They've already overtaken Israel. And somehow another Judah has been able to thwart off that thing by God's power and God's presence, right? And God's provision. And so to, to understand what's happening here, we understand that Hezekiah was probably the, the last great king over Judah before their imminent fall into Babylon. And to say that's not an overstatement. Like he ruled 29 years. He prospered even in the shadow of that looming threat of Assyria in the north, who had conquered the northern kingdom already in Israel. And, and, and it says here, and this is how you distinguish the good kings and the bad kings. It's always a label when you read the read first and second kings, first and second um, chronicles, is that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But he didn't just do what was right. He, he literally... He, 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 he tore down all the false idols and the worship and he erected that had been erected by his, his predecessors. And where Israel had been full on, full bore, fallen into all those same, those same idolatries and those same pagan practices, somehow or another Judah was able to stay out of the fray of that for a long time, even though they had ups and downs with some of their, some of their kings. Hezekiah chose faithfulness and trust before the Lord. And that largely marked his entire reign, particularly his first... By 14 or 15 years of his reign before he falls ill. So it's clear, if you understand the story, he was a, that the Lord was faithful to Hezekiah, and it was clear that God was with Hezekiah during his reign, in the, even in front of all the numerous, stronger, more formidable kings and nations that were rising to power all around him. This would have been a time where we could very easily fold like origami, yeah? And it's what Israel did. I mean, it's what, yeah, what Israel did in the northern kingdom. But friends, what happens in the second half of Hezekiah's reign is something for us to take note of. That he, like we, like him, can fall into the very real tendency 
We have the tendency to fall into vulnerability towards our fears and towards our despairs and towards our hopelessness because of the looming realities that exist around us or exist within our own lives or our own struggles with sin. We are prone to forget the power and presence of God. And that's exactly what we see in chapter in verses 2 through 8 as we continue to read it. We see an example of a, of a very real human the very real human frailty that was lived out in Hezekiah's life, but he represents the people of Judah. He represents us too in some ways. That this is very much our tendency uh, of that, that we, we give in to that human frailty because, because we are not trusting in and not resting in the sovereign hand of God. So let's look at verses 2 through 8. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house. That just should tell you so many such right there, right? He's entirely too comfortable with this sort of situation. So he shows him the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory. Who does this? He's who does this? All that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house and all that his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then, then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah, just, okay, right? Like, they've seen all my house. I mean, he just, no regard for the protection and care for his house. Like, they've seen everything. There's nothing in my storehouse that they didn't, that I did not show them. That can be, um, uh, that can be really wildly, like, comfortable that God's going to take care of this, which could be part of it or just incredibly, incredibly irresponsible. It's probably a little bit of both, but probably leaning towards number two. Verse five, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of, of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your houses, or your house, and all that which, and that which your fathers have stored up this, till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there would be peace and security in my days. Ooh. I mean, just consider what he's saying there. He's living just in that moment. What's, what will preserve the moment? What will make him feel peaceful for the days that he is leading? He's, he, he says, okay, well, all of that's future. My sons will have to deal with it. Sorry, too bad, too sad. But hey, right now, we're going to be okay. That's okay. It's even to the point of like, like he, he, he's, he understands the threats around him, and he's okay wielding the, 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 his trust to these foreign nations for his security and rather than God. And he's just perfectly okay with this. It tells you a little bit about how his heart had drifted. had drifted away from his own present comfort. That, that to maintain that, maintain this, at the same time, not trust his God. So Hezekiah had succumbed to this moment of weakness and imprudence. He had been sick. And Judah, no doubt, during that time when he was sick, was vulnerable to their foes. And, and it just reminds you and I that the greatest of men, the greatest of women, the greatest of kings, the greatest of queens are subject to this inherent frailty and weakness. Like none of us can escape that in this lifetime. None of us can. And we're foolish to think that we can. And Isaiah tells him because of his weakness 
he, he, that, that, that tells him that after, well, remember ourselves, like Hezekiah had outlasted, with God's help, Assyria. Assyria had actually invaded Jerusalem, and God thwarted it off. Amazing, right? But nonetheless, he is starting to, forgot, he is starting to forget that. He would taken that for granted. And now he's sick, and he's looking, things are not looking well. The future looks bleak for Hezekiah. In fact, in the initial assessment from Isaiah was he pronounced that he would not recover from his sickness and that he would die in the near days or weeks ahead. By the way, if you want to go get a further analysis of this, go to 2 Kings chapter 20. It gives you more detail on it. But not only does God allow him to recover at the middle of his reign, he gives him 15 more years. Isn't that amazing? 15 more years. He's at year 14 at this point when he gets sick, presumably. But here's where it gets sad. God preserves Hezekiah, shows his power with Hezekiah, shows his favor to this kingdom of Judah. But he allows Hezekiah, again, representing Judah, allows his fears to take over. And he allows it to take over his better judgment. In essence, what is happening here, he was leveraging his prosperity, he was leveraging that blessing that had been given to him by God and that, his, that the reign of God had secured for him. On, and he was leveraging it to secure what? Earthly security. Leveraging earthly status. Mostly security and comfort. And one of the clearest ways, brothers and sisters, that you and I can see that this is alive in our lives is when we cannot see nor give thanks to God for the good things that he's allowed to unfold in our lives. This is what happens. It's as clear as day. And this is what's happening in Hezekiah's life. We, we don't give thanks to God. We, we don't give him readable praise and, and thanks for what he has done and allowed to transpire in life. Um, how he has sovereignly and providentially worked, brothers and sisters, throughout the events of our lives. We can only see, sadly, how bad things are, right? You ever been there? I can only see how bad things are. I can... Um, I can only see how unfair things are. I can only see how hurtful things have been. We rarely, in these moments, like Hezekiah, can see God clearly, see ourselves clearly, and see others and the circumstances of our lives clearly. So take a minute. Think about this in your own self. Think about Hezekiah's story and how you can place yourself into the story. And consider how... It's been, and perhaps presently is true of your life and my life, that human tendency to rely on earthly solutions rather than seeking God and then bathing those things in Christian spirituality. We do this, right? We'll, we'll, we'll kind of label it something Christian. We'll put a little Christian sticker on it. But the reality is we're still depending on our own human faculties to get us through the moment. This is incredibly real for all of us if we're being honest with if we'll be honest with ourselves. There is no doubt that we live, as I mentioned at the very beginning of our time, fearful and uncertain times. Even being Christian seems ominous and unwelcome in our current cultural moment. I'm just using this as an example. I don't want us to look outward. I want us to look inward, too, because we gotta, it hopefully tells us what we're depending on, what we're hoping in. But how often are we tempted in the face of these, this, this cultural moment or in the face of the challenges in front of us, whatever they may be, to allow, um, how often do Christians allow or, or see our trust eroded in the power of God over all things and his interest in our good as his people? Right? How often do we allow that trust to be eroded and in in, in, in our trust and in his interest in his people? 
God's interested in your good, brothers and sisters. He's interested in our good. He, he has made a covenant with us, and we will sustain to the end. He will keep his church, and one day when he gloriously returns, his church will triumphantly go with him to heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. How often do we turn our interests to earthly pragmatic means in order to secure a more peaceful existence, only to allow the fears of this world to toss us, continually toss us to and fro? We do it all the time, yeah? And that's just one example, right? I noted that Isaiah, Isaiah 39 mirrors 2 Kings chapter 20, and the reason I bring that up is because just five chapters later, 2 Kings ends in chapter 25. It's roughly 100 years of past, and it's the time when Isaiah begins during that time before the full captivity of, of, of Judah. You've got to understand, the captivity of Judah came in waves. Okay, so like Babylon came in, they were gentle, they didn't, weren't so gentle the next time. Like if you go back to our time in Ezekiel, you'll remember some of those details. But during this whole time, as they're leading up to the end of, uh, of 2 Kings chapter 20, 25, before they're fully enraptured and fully exiled there in, Ju- in uh, Babylon, I mean, Judah's hope, there wasn't much left, was it? Couldn't have been. And they, they, they weren't sure about the days ahead. They weren't sure about God's love for them. They weren't sure that God was still with them, that God's presence with them. They, maybe they had done, finally, the, the, the unforgivable sin, and, they, and their God would not be for them any longer. Oh, but then we get to chapter 40. We get to chapter 40. And Isaiah prophesies to Judah who's now no longer living in a time of relative peace and prosperity and comfort under Hezekiah, but no, they are, they, but, but they, he's preaching to a fearful and hopeless people living in a crumbling kingdom under his son Manasseh's rule. Where his prophecy, and where his prophecies, I said earlier, prior to chapter 40, are, are warnings and judgment, his prophecy now is hope and comfort. So what I want to do in the balance of our time is to look at these five verses. And I want to, as I said earlier, look at four glad tidings of comfort and joy. Four glad tidings of comfort and joy. That the things that were fresh words of comfort to Israel and to Judah during these times are just as fresh for God's people today. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. God sends this message to Isaiah. So tiding number one, God, I'm sorry, we are still God's people. We are still God's people. Just notice, comfort, Isaiah says, a word from the Lord. Comfort my people, God says. But I'm your God. Notice the possessive nature of what is being transpired in the message. My people, I am your God. And brothers and sisters, you, we could look through Hezekiah, we could look through Judah, but let's just look at the, this is the theme of the entire Bible. In spite of Adam's failure in the garden, my people. In spite of Abraham's failure when he was making his way to the land that God would give him, my people. In spite of Jacob's deception, my people. In spite of Moses' unbelief when God speaks to him from the burning bush, my people. In spite of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness, my people. 
in spite of Israel painting for earthly gods, my people. In spite of David using his throne for personal gratification with Bathsheba, my people. In spite of Solomon's hedonistic pursuits after pleasure, power, and wealth, my people. In spite of Israel and Judah's lack of trust in God as warring nations are threatening them, my people. In spite of your sin, in spite of my sin, God has chosen a people for himself and he is faithful to his covenant with them, my people. We are still God's people. That leads us to the second tiding. It's closely related. Forgiveness and restoration is possible despite our sin. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, verse 2, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The comfort comes on the heels of this exile. It's given to them not only in the middle of the crumbling of the, of the nation, but it's given to them as hope for when they are in full exile, which was for discipline for their sin. And, and, and friends, we must recognize that even we get comfort, that doesn't mean that we won't experience discipline for our sin because of our lack of trust in God. So, but that's a, that's a second point. But notice that even in the midst of this, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And how does he speak tenderly? Cry that her warfare has ended. The, the, the war that we have pledged against God because of our sin, that he will not be our God, that God himself has emphatically won through his son Jesus, has ended. Again, fast forward to Isaiah 53. That she has been pardoned. We, the church, God's people, have been pardoned. By who? Christ. And that is, this is a, comes, we received double from the Lord's hand for our sins. What does this mean? Well, this is not, the, the idea here is as a kind of a mirror. The idea here is instead of receiving judgment, God has provided full and eternal atonement for our sin. We call it the great exchange. Christ takes on all of our unrighteousness. And we gain, and Christ imputes all of his righteousness for us. The, the, the rock of ages says this is the double cure. We're saved from God's wrath. We talked about that last week. But we're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. We're saved to Christ's righteousness and this purity of new life that we have in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have, now we're not only God's people, we also have his forgiveness and restoration as a promise to us. So, we're God's people glad, tiding number one. Glad, tiding number two, forgiveness and restoration is ours despite our sin. Tiding number three, the king is coming. The king is coming. A voice cries out. You're familiar with this if you read the New Testament, yeah? In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is, of course, Isaiah calling a time of preparation for the people of Judah. Make way. Make, make, make a way. Prepare for the Lord to come and be your comforter. But, of course, we find that this is picked up in the New Testament 
And it takes us forward to the ministry of John the Baptist, who came preaching the same message after 400, uh, 400 years of silence, proclaiming and echoed Isaiah's prophecy that was fresh to the people of Judah then, to remind them of God's faithfulness in exile, but, now, but to prepare themselves for this great king who comes to be their comforter, even more so when Christ comes, the new covenant, the fulfillment of all those covenant promises of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, consider Mark 1 through 3, well, 1, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Can you imagine the hope that would have rung through the hearts of John the Baptist's hearers who have, been, who have not heard a word, not a peep from a prophet for so many years? Seventy years of captivity and then to follow, the Holy Spirit is not there in all their temple and he's not there any longer and he is now silent through his prophets during this, 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 uh, this time of dark silence, it seems like. A cold and dark backdrop to John the Baptist's ministry that had plunged the world into nothing but hopelessness. It plunged God's people into nothing but hopelessness. They were still holding on somewhere. And so when John comes to preach this message, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight the paths of the Lord, and the significance of this is just as powerful for us as believers today as it was to Judah when Isaiah first gave it to them back during the pre-exilic times. See, Isaiah was looking forward to the first advent of Christ. And he was saying, prepare for that. This is going to be a, a difficult time, but that day, that day is going to end one day, and there's going to be one who comes, and you need to prepare for that king, and he comes to usher in the, to, 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 the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's looking forward to that first advent. Friends, you and I look forward to the second advent of Christ, as we've mentioned several times throughout this series, when all things will be realized and consummated. See, friends, it doesn't matter what epoch we live in. We are always in an, at a place where God invites us, his people, to be readying, readying, excuse, readying excuse me, our hearts for Christ's coming. That's where our comfort is, to ready our hearts for Christ's coming. We must constantly be readying ourselves for this, but we don't, do we? We're so a bit of a flutter. That's why we did the, the Advent reading we did earlier. We're always a flutter with all the other non-essentials. But the King is coming. He's come once. Praise to God. He has saved His people for Himself. He's accomplished all that is needed for that. But He's coming again in a more triumphant way, visible, bodily, and why does that matter? Because glad tying number four. Because when he does come, God will accomplish and finalize all of his purpose and his glory will be revealed to the whole world. So right now, you and I live in a moment where it just seems like no one wants to hear what we have to say. No one wants to give credence to the, to the God of glory. And we go, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, remind ourselves of verse four and five. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the picture here is that every purpose of God will come to pass. Every nation will be brought under the Lordship of Christ. 
And I don't take this, as you know, as the church being called to go and participate in some kind of eschatological, you know, praying in this kingdom. I don't. I can't get there. But I take this as a promise of God's Christ's coming and that he will come as our warrior king. And every knee, Paul says, and every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It will be, it will be unmistakable. See, I'm an optimistic, amillennial guy, sorry. It means I believe that I can preach the gospel, I believe we can go do good in the world, and even if the world doesn't change, I still know Christ is coming, and I still know the warrior king is going to come, and he's going to right all that has went wrong. That's where my hope lies, that every valley and every mountain and every hill and everything, that everything will sing forth the praises of God in its own good time. Now, what are we to do with that? How might we be encouraged with that? How might we do as John calls us to fresh, better, more freshly prepare as we live between these two advents? See, we need to prepare for the comfort, not just receive it, I think. We have to, we've presently received it, and we still yet to receive all the fullness of it, of course, But I think we need to remind ourselves of some of the wonderful truth that Jeremiah, who spoke to Judah during this time, in chapter 29, verses that you and I are all very familiar with, verses 4 through 12, and from it I want to just extract loosely three preparations. Let's just read Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, and live in them. Novel idea, right? Right here, in between the advents, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Normal things. Things that have been normal for humanity, if the, if, no matter how much our world tries to change definitions and change things, do the normal things. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and not decrease. So there's something good about families having children and, or adopting children perhaps too. Going out there so that we might continue to promote the goodness of God to the nations, showing them something more profoundly beautiful. For thus says the Lord, verse 8, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. See, this is what they were doing. These false prophets were coming in and they were highly resistant and they were giving false hope. Don't don't, don't get settled there. Uh, Don't get comfortable there. We're going back. We're going to have our own place again. We're going to rule our own selves again. No, Jeremiah says, don't let those prophets, those diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to their dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying 
to you in my name, God says. I did not send them, declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill all my promises and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, what we have to remember that though these were 70 years of, of exile for Jerusalem, a proper understanding understands that this is something typological here. And so this time, this 70 years, also points perhaps to the 70 years between the Advents, yeah? That we would live in a very similar way here. To just be present, be faithful, seek the flourishing of the city, seek the flourishing of God's people, do what we can in the society where we can, and be optimistic about it. But where it is rejected, we still carry on with our business. Uh, Peter says, be people living peaceable lives. So, with that said, I would invite us to think about three preparations, and then we'll finish. Number one, it requires us to shift our perspective. And and what I mean by that is pursue real repentance. Because the people of Israel thought they, they had their hopes in the wrong things. They need, we need to be recon, recognized and be honest about our own moments of vulnerability and fear, just like they, the, the Judah was and Hezekiah was, and our own moments of despair and how they take over. It, it requires this moment of, uh, uh, requires us to be honest with ourselves about the real false truths that drive our lives. It requires us to be honest about what, is, what tempts us to hope in everything but God. There are a lot of people who will staple Christ to their lives in so many Christianese kinds of ways, but comfort begins when we really admit what is going on inside of our hearts and we lay it before Christ. We're really honest about ourselves. Not always pointing to all the things out there, but pointing to ourselves and going, what's going on here? And laying ourselves prostrate before the Lord. Only then will we find solace and only then will we find hope in God's promises. You can read the Bible over and over and over again, but until you're willing to lay yourself before the Lord in repentance and, under, and be really, really honest with yourself, and before, with yourself and before your God, you'll never really experience the hope and promises of the restoration and the forgiveness and the hope we have that's lasting. That's ours now. Now. Two. It requires us to emphasize the power of God's grace and mercy that actually comforts us now. We are often like those in Judah who went into Babylon with fear, wondering if their God had abandoned them because of our sin or whatever else. And we must remember, we must experience God's grace and mercy found in Christ. That is the real seal of our lives. And it's still ours in the midst of this long sojourn, whatever the sojourn and whatever role it may take in your life, in the midst of this pilgrimage. So the pilgrimage is your faith in Christ. It's not the difficulties with your job. It's not the difficulties of the, uh, the, the uh, tyrannical nations and magistrates. It's not the difficulties in your family and your marriage or whatever else. It's not those things. That's not the challenge. 
The challenge is whether or not you and I will live with hope and rest before God who is the Lord of our life right now and He has more than enough grace, more than enough mercy for us in this very moment. See, beholding um, most... Uh, let me back up. A lot of our times we talk about grace and we talk about it in a superficial way, in a stunted way, in a cheap way, dare I say. And it's buried deep below this superfluous Christian veneer. No, beholding real grace and mercy is comforted by the cost of it. You can't embrace the grace and mercy of God if you don't recognize the cost that, it, that our Savior bore for your sin, for my sin. It detaches us from the obsession about our own need for justice. It detaches us from our own need of fulfillment. It detaches us from all those things because it plays us fully before the Lord. That's when you know you've experienced grace. That's when you know you're experiencing real mercy. Three, it requires us to rest in God's sovereign plan. Now, I know when you hear that, that sounds a little bit like Sunday school talk, like God talk, like just trust God talk. But what we're talking about here is an invitation from an assumed sovereignty that we have over our lives and a redirecting ourselves to a restful delight in the sovereignty of God. See, this, friends, this, brothers and sisters, this is the well in which we must drink, the well in which we find true and lasting comfort, true and lasting consolation. This is where we find tidings of comfort and joy. So you can't have joy, you can't have comfort, unless it's properly oriented in the proper delight. The proper delight. So let me just kind of finish this with um, thinking about something that I think most of us who grew up in the Charlie Brown Christmas special generation will understand really, really well. And I'll post this, an article that was posted 10 years ago on our Facebook group here shortly. As most of us know, Charlie Brown is best known for this uniquely striped shirt, and Linus is best known for his blanket, yeah, his blanket. It was a security blanket. And throughout the story of Peanuts, whatever, if, you, if, you've, if you've paid attention, you know there was, no, there was no shortage of attempts from Lucy, Snoopy, Sally, or anyone else to, uh, at all to work um, to, to, to try to separate Linus from his blanket. And all their attempts failed, even though his security blank remains a major source um, of ridicule for Linus among his friends. He simply refuses to give it up until a moment in the Christmas special. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, we all know it, don't we? He has that epic monologue, yeah? The climatic scene where Linus shares that the Christmas is all about, and he drops his security blanket. And I think we all know that this was by design by Charles Schultz. And it's brilliant, wasn't it? That at the birth of Christ, 
that, it, that it, it shows and separates us from the things that we find our securities in, and it, it beckons us to drop our security blanket and behold Christ. See, the world in 2023 is a scary place. And most of us find ourselves grasping for something temporal, for security, whatever that may be. And essentially, 2023 is a world in which it's very difficult for us to fear not. It's a direct quote from an article that I'll post later. But in the midst of this insecurity, in the midst of this fear, this cartoon reminds us, all the way back from 1965, it's, 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 it's interesting, it invites us to go, you can drop the blanket. And brothers and sisters, let's drop the blankets at this Christmas season. Let's find our comfort in Christ. Let us be comforted in our weakness and our fear and receive and adhere and hear the call to us as God's people that we might be eternally and presently and eternally comforted in the transforming power of Christ. Amen? Father, help us this morning. That's what we always do. We always end by saying, help us. Because, Lord, this is your word, not ours. And I can't imagine there be any number of struggles that may appear as we hear your word spoken to us on any given Sunday, whether it be a lesson or a sermon or whatnot. But we do ask, particularly this morning, to help us. Whatever the battle is, whether rage is, whatever is raging in our own hearts, whatever challenges that we feel like are the things that are insurmountable in our lives, God, would you help us to now turn, as a result of what we've heard here this morning, to Christ. To come to the table of Christ. Drop our security blanket and enjoy the feast of the Lord this morning. Father, we love you. You are way more gracious and merciful to us than we could ever possibly imagine. Be our comforter this day. Christ our King. Amen.